What shakes your faith? What causes you to doubt the truths of the gospel, the truths of Scripture? Recall that the Apostle Paul opens chapter 2 of this second letter to the Thessalonians by telling them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. What could shake their faith? He says, don't be shaken or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So what could shake their faith was a false teaching. A teaching that calls into question what Paul had previously taught them. A false teaching or a seeming revelation can shake our faith too, can't it? Indeed, there are many in our society who intentionally try to shake the faith of Christians. Have you noticed how often, right before Resurrection Sunday, a book, a film, the lead story in a magazine will, will come out implying to hold to the biblical account of Jesus' resurrection is out of date, is foolish, it's uncool. For example... Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, was published when? April 2003, about 10 days before Resurrection Sunday. Three years later, the National Geographic Society published with great fanfare a translation of the Gospel of Judas, again, one week before Resurrection Sunday. Five years later, Time Magazine cover, right before Easter. What if there is no hell? A year later, Time Magazine cover, a week before Easter. Rethinking heaven. So there are individuals and cultural institutions that try to shake our faith. And then, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks... Satan himself is at work always trying to shake our faith. As Peter tells us, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The last two Sundays we've examined verses 1 to 14 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And there we learn that Satan is indeed at work even in the church. Furthermore, Paul prophesies that there will be a great falling away from the church. So that these attempts to undermine, to shake the faith of Christians, will appear to work on a large scale. Many who once professed faith in Christ will no longer do so. But Paul also tells us that just as Jesus promised, he will return. And when he does so, just 
the breath of his mouth, just the appearance of his coming, will be enough to destroy Satan and all of those who follow him. Jesus' appearing will bring to nothing all of Satan's wiles. For as we saw last week, all of us who are truly in Christ have strong reason for hope. We're loved. We're chosen because of that love. We are holy. We believe the truth, not a lie, not a fiction. We believe the truth, and he calls us to himself, and he's glorifying us. Well, today we're going to focus on verses 15 to 17, the last three verses in the chapter. And we'll do this under two headings. First, stand firm. That's the command that Paul gives to us. And then the second heading, for God strengthens you. Stand firm, for God strengthens you. First of all, stand firm. Verse 15. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. How do we stand firm? When false teachings arise, when the basis of our faith is questioned, when secular or religious false prophets preach a distorted gospel, How do we endure in faith, in the truth, as Paul says in verse 13, faith in the truth? Well, Paul tells us in this verse, we stand firm when we hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Paul had spent weeks in Thessalonica teaching them when they were just coming to faith, and he had written them his first epistle, which we went through a few months ago. And so he tells them, remember what I taught you when I was with you. Remember what I wrote you in my first letter. Hold firmly to that truth. Anything you hear, anything you read, contrary to what I taught you, contrary to what I wrote you, is false. It may have the letters P-A-U-L at the end, but it's not from me. Now, verse 15 is an interesting verse. Its history of interpretation is interesting. Our Roman Catholic friends use this verse to argue for the authority of church tradition. Because Roman Catholics officially put church tradition at the same level as biblical revelation. And they say, well, look, right here, St. Paul says the Thessalonians are to hold to the traditions that are not included in the written scripture. Hold to the traditions that I taught by word, not only by letter. But that understanding of this verse removes it from the context of this letter 
and ignores when Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. First, the context. The Thessalonians are not to hold the traditions taught by just anyone. They are to hold what Paul, the apostle, taught them. They are not to hold what someone else teaches if it contradicts what Paul, the apostle, said and wrote. Then as for timing, realize the Thessalonian letters are amongst the earliest documents in the New Testament. So when Paul writes 2 Thessalonians and says this about, remember what I wrote when I was with you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written. Acts was not written. Book of Revelation was not written. Hebrews, Romans, Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, none of those were written. They didn't have that word to hold on to. Of course, they have to hold on to what Paul had taught them verbally. They have nothing else. Today, that has changed. We have the entire New Testament canon available to us. We have all these teachings of the apostles. What Jude refers to as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There was no need to add to that revelation in subsequent years to tell us that Mary was a virgin for, her, for all of her life or that she was born without original sin. Some of the traditions that the Roman Catholic Church says have the authority of Scripture. So, how do we do what Paul commands the Thessalonians? How do we hold to the traditions that we are taught? We do that by holding fast to the Word of God, by holding fast to the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. These are the God-breathed scriptures profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we can be fully equipped for every good work, as Paul will write to Timothy a couple of decades later. These scriptures encompass the truth that we are now to believe. We must not be shaken by any apocryphal gospel. We must not be shaken, have our faith disturbed by the spirit of our age or by the latest attempts to debunk spiritual biblical truth. But rather, we must hold firmly to the Bible, to the scriptures. Recall the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in Titus chapter 1, as a qualification for elders, for pastors. He says, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught. It's a qualification for elders, but really it's an exhortation to all believers. Hold firm the trustworthy word as taught. Or as Paul tells Timothy 
in his final letter, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed. And then he makes clear that he's talking about Scripture itself. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. We all must do the same, whether we're elder or not an elder. As verse 9 in 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, there will be false signs, there will be wonders, there will be wicked deception. So we must go back again and again and again and again to the word, the truth, what is God-breathed. Let your mind be transformed by that word. Only in that way can you stand firm and hold on to what you have been taught. So stand firm. That's the first heading. Second heading, for God strengthens you. To this point, Paul has emphasized our responsibility. Don't be shaken or alarmed. Stand firm. Hold fast the apostles' teaching. We must do the same. The exhortation is for us. But then in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, God is the one who enables you to stand. Stand firm! And know God is the one who enables you to stand. Recall that Paul states something similar multiple times in his letters. One example, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. Work it out. But what does he go on to say? For it is God who works in you. You work it out. That's the command. And God gives the ability to fulfill the command. Let's see how Paul makes that point in today's text. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So now what Paul does in these two verses. First, verse 16 highlights what God has already done for us, summarizing what we saw last week in verses 13 and 14. And then, in verse 17, Paul prays that God the Father and the Lord Jesus will work now, today, in accord with what the Father has already done. So he he summarizes what God has already done, and then he prays that that would happen today, right now, in the lives of the believers. So let's look at those two in turn. First, what has God already done? Well, what has he already done? Verse 16 tells us God has already loved us. We emphasized this last week from verse 13. You are loved. And that love is not prompted by something in you. God didn't look at Bria and think, oh, Bria is such a wonderful person. I just have to love her so much. That's not what God did. 
It's not what God did. The love is not prompted by anything in us. He just loves us because he loves us. Thus, Paul says, it is all by grace. It is all through grace. It is all undeserved on our part. But you see how wonderful that is. When there's nothing in us that caused God to love us, that means there's nothing we can do that will cause God to stop loving us. Because he already knew all the horrible things about us before he loved us. We were already rebels against him. We were already, by nature, children of his wrath. He knew all that. So that's the joy of his loving us simply because he loves us. We can't make him change. He's always going to love us. And furthermore, we saw last week that if we are in Christ, he loves us as individuals, not just as a class of people. He loves Jeremy. He loves Rick. He loves Mike. Yes, he loves the church. The church is the bride of Christ, but he loves us individually within the church. And that love then led to his election, his choosing you, and then his making you holy, sanctifying you. So God loved us. That's something he's already done. In addition to saying God loved us, Paul says he gave us eternal comfort, eternal encouragement, that can be translated, and good hope. Eternal comfort. So he didn't just comfort one particular affliction that we had. His comfort, his encouragement goes on and on forever and ever. For his love never changes. His love never fails. His love lasts an eternity. And he promises a manifestation of that love in the future when he will wipe every tear from our eyes after Jesus returns. And we will always be with Jesus. And he tells us, as we read from Luke chapter 4, that Jesus has already defeated Satan. He has already resisted the temptation. He has rendered Satan powerless, defeating him at the cross. And so we have an eternal encouragement. We have the best possible hope. That's what God has already done for us. He has loved us, and then he has given us this eternal encouragement and hope. Well, then, verse 17, what Paul prays 
that God and Jesus will do now for the Thessalonians. Paul prays that God the Father and the Lord Jesus will take that eternal encouragement and apply it to the hearts of the Thessalonians today, right now. And I suggest this is a a marvelous way for us to pray for one another. So think of a situation where you have a friend who's a solid believer, but this person has a terminal disease. He or she is dying. And so pray in accord with what the Apostle Paul says here. Oh, Father, take the hope that my friend has always had of an eternity with you. He's always held firmly to this hope of heaven and help him right now to know just as surely as you, just as surely that he has that hope of heaven, that you are with him right now. You love him right now in the midst of the pain. Break through the fog that comes from the medication and help him to hold firmly to that truth, not only of an eternity with you, but that you love him right now and you never leave him or forsake him. Or for a mother whose children are straying from the faith, Father, take her faith in your eternal promises, especially that since you've given Jesus for us, you surely will give us all things. And help her to see that right now you have given her so many things, that your Holy Spirit is in her, that she has all things pertaining to life and godliness that in the midst of this pain, she is now your beloved child. She right now can continue to be the agent of her love, even to these straying children. She can do all this by your grace, by your power. And as we read in our call to worship from Isaiah, the Lord will comfort his people. He will comfort Zion. He comforts all her waste places, all those places where it seems there is no comfort, that he provides it, and joy and gladness will be found in her. So that's the first item that Paul prays for in verse 17, that God and the Lord Jesus would comfort or encourage their hearts right now. But secondly, then, he he prays that the Father and the Lord Jesus would establish their hearts. He has told the Thessalonians, stand firm. And now he prays, essentially, God, enable them to stand firm. Strengthen them. We can only fulfill God's commands by his work, by his power, by his grace. That's been true ever since man's initial rebellion in the garden. We are rebels by nature, and we will display that nature unless God gives us his grace. So God commands us, stand firm, and he works to enable us to stand firm. 
But Paul goes on to say, establish their hearts in every good work and word. So you see, Paul's not only saying, make them strong. He's saying, make them strong and have that strength manifested in what they do and what they say. Thus, when Paul says stand firm, he's not only talking about what is inside of us. He's not only talking about the solidity of our faith. He's not only talking about our attitudes. By his power, we are to continue to let our light shine before men, even those men who are trying to upset our faith, so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. We not only are to hold firmly internally to what the apostles teach in the scriptures, but by his power, we are to speak it. We are to proclaim it. Since faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So do you think in those terms, when you desire God's comfort and strength? It's easy for us to focus on asking for strength for our faith, asking for strength against our tendency to worry, asking for strength in order to endure in the faith and not give up. But God comforts and strengthens our hearts in every good work and word. And his encouragement should lead to action. His encouragement should lead to vocalization, to speaking. As we read from the book of James, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't be like that man who wakes up in the morning and looks in the mirror and sees his hair all messed up and drool coming out of his mouth and maybe something sticking out of his nose and then walks away and doesn't do anything about it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. God's encouragement should lead to action. His strengthening should lead to speaking. And you know what? When it does... When you act in showing God's love, when you speak the gospel, words of comfort and peace to the hurting, you are comforted that much more. He gives you the comfort, he gives you the strength to act and to speak. And then when you do so, there's a positive feedback. You see the power of the gospel when you speak it. You see the needs around you. You see what you have that others do not have. You see God using you, broken, hurting, weak as you are. You see that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And your faith becomes that much more 
solid. So God strengthens you internally, and then when you step out, in that act of stepping out, he encourages you and strengthens you that much more. So no, God is your encourager, your comforter, your strengthener. You have good hope, hope for eternity, and hope for the present. May he establish our hearts so that we step out in every good work and word. So Paul is not speaking theoretically of our need to step out in good works by God's power. In chapter 3, as we're going to see in a few weeks, the apostle will talk about those in Thessalonica who are not stepping out in good works. There are some who are rebellious, who are idols, who are not taking the faith that they profess and putting it into action. We're going to see that. But for now, let me apply these truths to to our church. At DGCC, we rightly emphasize the need for us to change from the inside out. We like to quote Romans 12, 2. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. There has to be an internal change. We like to quote Matthew 13, 43, that Jesus is like that treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds, and out of his joy, he covers up and goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And thus we are to desire Jesus above all things. We are to treasure him above all that the world has to offer. We emphasize that we are to know that in God's presence there is fullness of joy and nowhere else. And we highlight those passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament which make clear simply going through the motions of religious ritual without a heart change is worthless. In fact, it is despicable before God. But verse 17 here in our text is the flip side of that. Do you see it? Yes, there must be an inner change. Verse 16 implies that there is an inner change. If God has already done that mighty work, there is an inner change. But that inner change must display itself in work and word. Just as actions are fake without the heart, A supposed heart change that does not lead to actions is not genuine. So the question for us this morning is, are we displaying our heart change in actions and words? Is it evident to those around us that Jesus indeed is our treasure? Does who Jesus is shine through us in our family life, in our workplace, in our school, in our day-to-day activities?
The point is not the Nike slogan, just do it. Rather, the point is we need God's grace to do it. And we naturally resist his transforming power. We naturally slip back in to old habits of how we use our time, how we relate to one another. So first, believe in what God has done through the gospel, through the Lord Jesus. He has loved you. He's given you eternal encouragement and good hope. And then pray for one another. Encourage one another. Help one another to step out in good work, in word. And in this way, as Paul said in the first chapter of this second epistle to the Thessalonians, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we long to shine with your light. And we confess that we so often do not. So, Father, hear our prayers as we pray, reflecting on these truths. Hear our prayers so that we might go forth in the power of the Spirit and be what you intend us to be. Changed on the inside and changed on the outside showing who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.